Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer Podcast. And today my guest is Howard Prusik from High Meadows Farm. And Howard has been farming vegetables in, he's been in the industry for over 40 years or around 40 years. And uh, Howard, why don't you just give your intro? Because again, it's, it's extensive. I know, thanks. It, it makes me sound really old, but as, <laughs> as you know, I, I started, I was a very precocious seven-year-old. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not as old as I, as I am, uh, but I actually started in 1971. Uh, okay. I, start, I started working on a, a, on a very, a new startup organic vegetable farm uh, in Vermont called not too pretentiously named Nature Farms. Okay. And uh, it was in Westminster West, right outside of Putney. And um it was sort of a collective but commercial farm uh, run by Samuel Kamen, who uh, later went on to start Stonyfield Yogurt, as you know. Yes. And um, anyway, it was a group, there might have been about 20 of us, and we, we were living in teepees and in the woods. And like I said, it was, it was semi-communal. It, uh-huh. was, it was a blast, especially for me coming from uh, Brooklyn. It was like a whole life changed. And it was in Vermont, and it was summertime, and it was gorgeous. Um, and basically, all of Samuel's knowledge came from Rodale's Encyclopedia of Organic Gardening, mm. which was about the only bit of information you could get back then on organic gardening. Um, we went around with a big dump truck uh, shoveling bat guano from churches and town hall attics uh, for fertilizer. Mm. Um and uh, it was it was quite quite amazing what we grew. We grew actually acres and acres of stuff, and we did have tractors, and we started doing uh, cover crops and rotations, and um, and started selling it to supermarkets in Boston. And actually, we were you know one of well, might at that point might have been the largest organic grower in Vermont, in 1971. Mm. Uh, started using commercial uh, compost from uh, Pennsylvania called Earthrite from made by Zook and Rank, two Amish guys who actually drove up to visit because they couldn't believe, want to say who was buying so much of their compost. Uh-huh. And they were great. Anyway, that farm lasted two years. Uh, they went out, Samuel left and the farm fell apart. I stayed there and I sort of put it together piece by piece over the next two years. I started a farmer's market in Brattleboro. Uh, I started growing vegetables. Uh, delivering it to, to New York City in my little Datsun pickup truck, uh, getting all of 15 cents a pound for organic Green Mountain potatoes, 12 cents a pound for cabbage, Whoa. And, a, and a whopping 75 cents a pound for tomatoes. That was the moneymaker. <laughs> flats of tomatoes for 75 cents a pound. And my, my vegetable farmer friends down in, in the valley, they thought I was a crook because I was getting 15 cents a pound for potato, you know, my prices to yeah. them for around here was like, holy smoke, Prusak, you're quite the crook. <laughs> it was funny, but down there in the city, they went nuts. You know, they, uh-huh. they couldn't get enough. 
and um, it, it was quite quite a deal. Anyway, by 1979, I actually bought my own farm just down the road, uh, a couple uh, thousand yards down the road. Uh, it was 50 acres, house, barns, uh, $90,000. Uh, no, no money down, and it was totally financed through uh, farmer FHA at the time. Now yep. it's SA uh, through Jimmy Carter's limited resource program that he started. Uh, I got flown up to uh, Poland Spring, Maine, to get introduced to this whole program. It was quite a, you know, mm. groundbreaking thing at the time. And uh, it got me a farm, no money yeah. down. And, that's that's um, a, that's a st that's stealing in Vermont. I mean, the prices of land now are what twenty times that. Oh, now, yeah. Back then, back then, it was a very expensive farm. It was considered to be. It was the most expensive farm that was sold in in the county. Like, you know, yeah, there was no comparables. Wow. So, but I didn't know any better, you know, yeah. and it's like, oh, okay, this looks good. It's like, oh, a house, it's got a real bathroom and it's like <laughs> land, you know, it's like, okay. And there were yeah. cows in the barn. There was a dairy farmer there. And I told them, oh no, you, you could stay there for a year because I was still using the land up the road. Yeah. And that's so, the farm you have now. Yeah. I did not move. I, okay. I moved once in 40 nine years <laughs> okay because and that's not even i mean it has good land because i've been there but it's 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 quite a hilly farm it's it's rolling hills yeah. yeah they're not very steep some you know some they they might exceed what you would want and i don't mm -hmm. plow those hills so it's not 50 acres of farmland there's probably five, uh, five acres of hard hardwoods and we've added to it i bought another 15 acres across the road uh beautiful forested land uh, really nice with a cabin but as far as land goes it's 35 acres of tillable tillable mm. farmland um but yeah it's hard to find that now for sure i turned down at the time the woman i bought it from offered me another 40 acres on the other side of the stream uh for another forty thousand dollars and i just said no I, it was like it was blowing my mind like the numbers mm -hmm. the numbers like it was way too much land for me to even think of I had one tractor and a rototiller. It was like in a planet junior. <laughs> it's like it's little, little beyond my capabilities. Um, but it worked out uh, really well. That same year, I actually scored a uh, twelve thousand dollar grant from the, the Department of Energy to put up our first greenhouse. Oh wow! Uh, they, they had a grant program that year. If you could tie it into some sort of energy pro, you know, mm -hmm. energy saving thing, and I did, and I got the largest grant that they awarded nationally that year. So, nineteen seventy nine was a good year for me. I got yeah, mom, I got a greenhouse, uh, which I'm still using. So, if you buy quality to begin with, it it's still it's, yeah. It pays. Which greenhouse is that one? Oh, it's it's a, not a Criterion. Nexus. It's a Nexus. Okay. And is that the one at the top of the hill? That's your propagation? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, it's a round yes. uh, oval, which yeah. it was the only one of that type I put up. And if it wasn't built so strong, it wouldn't have held up, but we've had so much snow on it. I actually have walked over the top of that greenhouse because there was so much snow and I would take my <laughs> kids up there with sleds and we would, we would slide off the top of that greenhouse. I've got <laughs> great pictures of that when they were little. So um, it, it's a well-built house. Yeah. Because uh, you, ventilation. 
Yeah, you just got a massive snowstorm up there last week. 24 inches. 24 inches, wow. Which is actually the biggest storm we've had in, in a bunch of years and it's beautiful snow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, up here, snow is money uh, for yes. the economy. Uh, so many guys, you know, run plow trucks and the skis and, you know, mm -hmm. it's just endless. So everybody all smiles and it looks pretty. I've been yes. snowshoeing every day. That's my winter exercise. So I strap them on and I go <laughs> walking around the farm. I was following coyote uh, tracks yesterday um, through the through the fields and into the woods. Uh, not everybody gets a chance to do that. No. So it was it was great. So that was a good year for me. Uh, I built a farm stand uh, in the early 80s. Uh, I was marketing locally in the 70s. And I was driving down uh, to New York City uh, with my with vegetables and and maple syrup. Actually, I was I started selling maple syrup to Macy's, to Bloomingdale's, to Zabar's. Uh, you name the the top store in uh, New York City and Manhattan, and I had my maple syrup in there. And this goes into marketing, and I'll talk a little about that. Like, mm -hmm. how did I do that? <laughs> and um, for me, it was easy, and I'll tell you how. So I, I finally, I built a small farm stand under the eve of a vacated uh, car dealership in the 80s I rented mm -hmm. and, um, you know, built up a, a local trade that way. Uh, I hired somebody to, to run it, to man it and bought down truckload of stuff every day. And that went good. And from there, I built a bigger market uh, in the mid 80s down the road. I bought a half acre of commercial property. Uh, for $75,000 and I put up a, a fancy ass market and I ran that for, I built that in 91. Uh, no, but I sold it in 91, getting ahead of myself. I got sold that for $440,000 and uh, sort of moved on from, from there to, uh, to other things. I took an eight year semi sabbatical from my business and I became a, um, a sales rep for natural food companies uh, for New England, uh, traditional medicinals, Lundberg Farms, Muir Glen, Amy's Frozen Foods, basically all the top natural food uh -huh. companies. I was a New England rep. And for traditional medicinals, I had like the smallest territory in the country, but I was a top salesman. So uh -huh. just again, we get back to sales and how, you know, what drives a farm, what makes a farm successful. And uh, it, it's it's selling because mm -hmm. all farmers could be a great at growing stuff, and that's the easy part. But finding a market and selling it uh, and making a profit—that's where it gets the hasty. That's that's where you start separating the wheat from the the chaff, and we'll get into that a little more. Um, mm -hmm. I got into I was selling into Whole Foods stores uh, in New England, and that's got gave me a break of how to understand uh, how those big chains work, how they buy, how to deal with them, what they wanted. Um, and when I went back into farming full time, I, I kept my Rolodex or my day timer, I would call it now. Yeah. And I had all the names and the phone numbers. And it was like, uh, hey, I'm selling potted herbs now <laughs> instead of Lundberg rice cakes. Mm -hmm. And um, it, that worked. That was one of the tools. So my the bottom line is for me, whatever you do in life goes could get the experience that you gain in business in any business becomes useful to you down the road. Um, and 
and make friends wherever you go because you meet the same people on the way up that you're going to need when you're on your own. Mm-hmm. So that's that was always my guiding my guiding light. Um, so basically, and I left that that sales business in year 2000. I went into the farm full time. Uh, I already had an existing greenhouse, and we stocked it and started growing things. and And I bought a truck and uh, delivering it all all over, uh, adding stores. I had a map with pins, and every time I added a store stick a pin in the map mm-hmm. and uh, we were off and off and running and we now sell we're in four states and we have our own trucks and a, and a driver and so four days of the week we're running of at least one or two full trucks out of the farm uh to delivering a, along the way and oh yeah and you'll lo- love this one and we charge for delivery um, <laughs> <laughs> so and you're focused mostly, again, you, you do a little bit of a wide range, but the majority of your business is a horticulture, which would be vegetable transplants, uh, potted plants, potted herbs, that sort of thing. Exactly. Uh, it, yeah, we used to do hanging baskets. I used to do perennials. I used to do mums. But um, as you know, we, we pared down uh, mm-hmm. the business over the years. I call it category management. Mm-hmm. Um, and my strategy of doing more with less. And every time we got rid of a line, our sales would go up because the focus gets mm-hmm. focused on what we have left. And people want to, because we are charging for delivery, they don't cut back on the order. They, they're paying the same price, whether they order a hundred or 500 or a thousand. Mm-hmm. So they order as much as they could logistically use. So yeah. that strategy worked out. So yeah, the business breaks down into about 75% horticulture, 25% um, vegetables. Uh, And now the vegetables actually are creeping up to about a third um, of the business because we have shrunk down on a horticulture. Now we had a nice, Whole Foods was a nice $75,000 a year contract. We actually had a contract with them Mm. and that's how it works for them. Uh, We delivered to their central warehouse in uh, uh, Chelsea, uh, Connecticut. Uh, Cheshire, Connecticut, and on Sunday, and then on Monday, my plans turned up in uh, 28 different Whole Foods markets Monday morning on their own wow. trucks. So it was pretty sweet. But we yeah. we gave that up after eight years because what it was, I'm I was working six days a week really hard, and my reward was that on Sunday I had to work even harder to yeah. uh, to uh, load, you know, fulfill the orders, load the trucks, and, and all that jazz. So it was an easy. At some point, it was as much as I hated giving up the sales. That's like yeah. we gave it up. But what was so strange is that our other sales picked up almost all the business. Um, mm-hmm. So our, our gross sales that year uh, didn't go down $75,000. It, it got picked up the other stores. I just mm-hmm. sort of organically grew because I was able to focus on the remaining stores. So it, it gets against category management. For yeah. Me. So well, our I- sales peaked at... Uh, $550,000 three years ago, and we've been trimming it back uh, since uh, a little bit every year. 
Um, so, and I think the other thing too is with categorical management too, you're doing a better job at what's left because now when you're not growing mums anymore, you suddenly don't have to manage mums. You can focus that management time, that management effort, the management thought process. Because I think you know all of us as farmers think we're really smart, and and one aspect farmers have one of the hardest jobs out there because there's so many little things to think about, especially with the weather. But when you can focus that on less things to think about, less categories, you can do each category better. Well, retail is detail, and mm. it's the same with farming. Uh, basically, we're retailing on a wholesale level. Uh, but yeah, less um, reduced items, uh, sales increase on, on what's left. I, I, I tell the story that you know Tesla has three items. They're worth more as a company than all the American car and trunk co truck companies combined times five. Okay. Wow. They have three items. Yeah. Why is that? Well, they're innovative, sure, but they're focused. You know, they're fo mm -hmm. it's a focused company. Uh, Apple, uh, 1997, had 250 items. In 2011, they had seven items. That's all they had in 2011. Wow. And their company experienced a tenfold increase in business. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Jobs, when he when he went back to there in '97, he just took a look at their lineup and said, "This is nuts," and just got rid of like tons of stuff. So my my business plan was um, uh, several things. I offered. I was giving my stores new business and profits from items they never sold before. I went after accounts that didn't traditionally sell potted herbs. Um, and I didn't want to steal anybody else's business. I didn't want to start growing lettuce and bump, you know, mm -hmm. Joe Bove out of his lettuce sales. I wanted to create new opportunities for my stores, which gave them an incentive to buy from me. Um, wow, this is a new item. Yeah, let's try that. So I bought racks and we would set racks up in the stores or outside the stores. The racks were on wheels so they could wheel them in if they wanted. Uh, and I went to non-traditional stores, grocery stores, uh, food co-ops. Uh, and then I did go to um, garden centers who mm -hmm. hadn't had lines of organic potted herbs and vegetable starts. And then I guaranteed the sales. All right. Okay. Um, I picked up returns if anything was crappy because we were there weekly and we would take anything yep. bad and, and take them back. So it's another thing that that set us apart. Did you ever and, have a problem with people not caring for the products? And yes, uh, yes. So you, and I, I, dropped, I dropped the counts. Okay. I dropped the counts. If it became a, a yeah, I toyed with, well, maybe I should hire somebody who just follows me around you know, two days later to the, yeah. you know, all the accounts and kind of, you know, take care of them and improvement. And I did that actually uh, some local stores, my wife would go into our local store or two and would pretty them up and straighten them out. And it did increase sales, but I, I couldn't scale it up. And I found it was easy at some point just to like cut those stores off mm -hmm. um, and, and focus on the ones that made me money, you know, 80% of my sales were coming from 20% of my items mm -hmm. and 20% of my account. So uh, we just, it's easy to get rid of the laggards and, and, and focus. So um, now we have 10 greenhouses, about 28,000 square feet of heated space. Um, and uh, the business just grew on its 
on its own. Um, mm -hmm. I knew when I when I restarted the business, my my theory was I had no expectations, so that I would exceed <laughs> I would exceed yeah. my low expectations, and I wouldn't pressure myself. And, and that philosophy worked really well. But um, now, you know, I, I am a very competitive person, so I just you know just kept on adding and went to it and went to it. But now we sort of set, we're settled into a a plateau and um, uh, just doing maintenance and upgrades and new door doors on the greenhouses, fans and stuff like uh -huh. that. 10 greenhouses is a lot of maintenance work. Um, uh -huh. And that's, you know, I always worry when people tell me they're going to put up a lot of, you know, start adding greenhouses, you know, that they, they're not maintenance free, you know, yes. they're, high, they're high maintenance things. And I'm in a very windy area and, and it snows and it rains and, and things break and blow doors blow off and and you learn a lot of tricks and you know, how do you doors not blow off well we started putting in sliding doors you know mm -hmm. and then um where that wasn't appropriate we have doors that open inward so the wind wouldn't catch the door and throw it yes. again and you know, bust the hinges off um so you learn those those tricks um over so, time go ahead go on yeah, what brands do you have for the tunnels? Mostly, mostly they're Harnois. Mm -hmm. um, I, I got those on the re recommendation of Mike Collins, actually, way yep. back. Um, he said, bang for the buck. Uh, and they're very generous in the amount of uh, hardware they give you. Uh, there's always extra. It's like you're yes. not getting down to, uh oh, we're missing without, we need a nut. You know, they give you, they weigh the parts out. So you get these bags of bolts and bags of nuts. And, and there's always extras, like lifetime extras of nuts and bolts and things. <laughs> and, and they're really rugged. They're made in Quebec. So, you know, they're going to handle, you know, the, the, the snow yeah. load. And they were self ventilating. The tops crank open and you could roll up the sides and, so the only fans are interior HAF fans. There's no exhaust fans. So I, I like that a lot because my old Nexus, I had these huge exhaust fans. And yeah. it would suck the moisture out of there. And I had to water it, you know, like three times a day. <laughs> it's like all I was doing was watering it. Yeah. So I, I like the Harnois. Now, uh, th so that's like a ridge vent is what that's considered. It is. Yeah. Now, have you seen some of the new um, greenhouse fans, which instead of like a HAF, like a horizontal, they're a vertical fan, which basically they almost put like a big ceiling fan right in the peak. No, I haven't seen those. Yeah. Ray no, Tyler, I, I was literally down at his place last week and he literally was installing them that day. And mm -hmm. very interesting. He says it, it feels like it keeps it warmer. Because it's it warmer. Cause it's pulling out that hot air right from the peak, especially during the winter time and forcing that air all the way down compared to a horizontal airflow, which doesn't actually get up into the peak. It's just pulling the, it's just circulating the air that's down further. Oh, so it's, it's an exhaust fan or is it a circulating fan? It's a circulating fan, but it's like, oh, a, it's, okay. it's, sure. it's, but it's like putting a regular ceiling fan right in your peak. And so it sure. basically circulates from the top all the way to the bottom, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, they had, that was popular during the energy crisis of the late seventies and early eighties. There was small version of it. There were, you would mm -hmm. mount them up in the peak and they would blow down uh, through a tube uh, to sort of recirculate the hot air. I had a jet tube fan. Oh, interesting. Uh, which was um, real popular. Uh, for a long time um, and it was along the peak and there was a plastic tube that ran the length of the greenhouse and it would basically 
uh, circulate the air down from the top. And I, I liked that a lot, but the big fan was very noisy. Mm -hmm. And I, I was happy to, to pull that out and just go with the HAFs. So. So walk us through the, the growing season for you, because obviously, I mean, in the, the greenhouse is one very specific part of your business, but then you move out to the field. I know you also do some hemp. Um, so talk us through like, you know, how the season progresses for you. Okay, sure. Well, we actually start mid-January. We start doing seeding of, um, um, on, we have heated benches and that's the only house I keep running year round now. Uh, we seed, um, day neutral and alpine strawberries from seed. And we, cause we sell those by the thousands and they, they look really nice. And we sell those in April and, and May, they actually have fruit on it. So we start with that and then weekly uh, we'll start adding uh, whatever the, um, the master plan. Mm -hmm. We've got records from going back from 20 years, planting schedules and my wife, Lisa, uh, does uh, a weekly and a daily printout of what needs to get planted that day, what item, how many seeds, uh, how, many, how many trays, uh, and that sort of thing. So it's pretty scheduled once we get up and running. So, but it, it's, you know, it's not high pressure. We're not shipping anything. So uh -huh. uh, February, we're doing that uh, and in, into March. And then by then we're transplanting into March. I'm in the greenhouse and we open up greenhouses as they get full. Um, some of them are heated with propane. Uh, some of them are heated with, with oil. Okay. Now question for you on greenhouses, larger greenhouses, but less of them or more smaller greenhouses. So you can turn them on and off a lot easier. No, it depends on topography as, as well. Um, I mean, big greenhouses are more efficient. There's no way uh, you could get around that. Mm -hmm. Um, but by having smaller greenhouses, I'm sort of zoning them and opening yeah. up the zone uh, that way. And also uh, you're keeping insects and disease isolated. Uh -huh. So, you know, there's two sides you could play with it. I've been to very big operations that have just multiples of, uh, you know, smaller greenhouses as well as some big ones. It depends on the crop. But, you know, most operations, they start with smaller greenhouses. It's hard to start with a big vision. Uh, if you if you start too big uh, from the beginning, it might be a disaster. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the landscape is, is dotted with empty greenhouses that went bankrupt mm -hmm. after a few years. Um, so you really need to grow as cautiously. Um, throwing mm -hmm. money at a at a at a problem or a solution that, as a solution to a problem that doesn't yet exist is never a good strategy. So. Uh, I, I like building building them as as I needed them, but the gotcha. big ones are awesome. It's great working. When, you know, after working in smaller tunnels, and then you get into a full size greenhouse with a fifteen foot peak, and it's what mm -hmm. a difference. It's working conditions are much better in a big greenhouse, and and we love them for that. So that's where we do our work is in the bigger greenhouses. Gotcha. Okay, so we've gotten into you know I think you said April. You're you're transplanting. When's the first truck leave the farm with product? Um, third week of April. Okay. Um, we start rolling. Uh, and what's cool is that we're in Vermont, but we're in the corner of Vermont, so we actually could service four states really easily. You know, twenty-five minutes south, I'm in Massachusetts. Twenty minutes to the east, I'm in New Hampshire. Uh, I could be in Connecticut. 
pretty in an hour from my dooryard i could be in downtown hartford um, mm. so we're we've been ideally located for that from the get-go and that wasn't planned that's just the way it happened um so we'll start doing uh, they start out small uh and mostly the first loads are going towards connecticut because they're earlier and that's yeah. where the demand is. And then as the season progresses and Massachusetts starts opening up and then way up in Burlington is we have a, the largest garden centers in Vermont and they have big indoor ranges. So they could take stuff in early and they want to fill their greenhouses up early. Garden Supply Company, I'm mm -hmm. sure you've heard, you know them. Yeah. And um, so that starts getting... Uh, then by then we're running full crew. And at our peak, we had a dozen people working here. Um, and we, because of COVID this, 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 this year, we, we were, we managed to work with just four people here and do virtually the same work we do uh, all the time. So there was, we learned a lot of labor saving, saving things, but by then I'm almost into the field. I've got, I'll start my field, my squash, um, starts uh, in May, uh, the greenhouse, we do a tomato house, uh, of course, and the graftings are done uh, in April, early April. Um, and that's been a, that, that's been an interesting thing to get into. We were doing a lot of custom grafting mm -hmm. uh, for other growers. Um, and uh, we still might do some, because uh, Johnny's apparently isn't uh, taking orders anymore for uh, yeah. the seedling. So I'm getting a lot of a lot of calls, but it's, it's pretty, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world. It's stressful. That's why I got yeah. out of it. It was, it was very, very stressful, you know, meeting people's what they want, when they want it. It's like, wow, it's a lot of work. Um, but it, it was, it was a nice dollar in, uh, in April to, yeah. you know, deliver uh, thousands of dollars worth of uh, plugs to uh, one grower and this and that. So it was nice. And then the hemp grows so quick. There's no need to start it early. Uh, we were shipping. I told my hemp people that we sell, sell the hemp seedlings to, you know, you don't need it before the end of May. So really we started seeding it at the end of April or first week of May and uh, 30, 45 days, you've got some beautiful hemp seedlings. And yeah, we sold thousands and thousands of those seedlings. And that's been, that's been where we made our hemp money as well as selling our, our, um, a trim bud uh, later in, yeah. in the season. So we were, we got on board early. We got Vermont licensed to do that three years ago and we made our name and our quality uh, and there, and there we were because um, good seed, you know, people are selling just poor quality seeds of unknown origin and, uh -huh. and people are getting really weird things growing in their field and they really were no good, but we use proven, uh, proven varieties and, and, there was a big demand for that. So it worked out great. Hemp for me has been a good thing, but I yeah. know a lot of people have been disappointed. Well, I think a lot of people went into it that, and so I think this is goes back to some people get in the farming because they love the, the lifestyle. It's a long-term thing for them and they figure out their niche and they make it work. And that was kind of like what you did. Other people get into it because they thought the hemp was a quick, rich, you know, get rich, quick scheme. And so Absolutely. they went, they went into it for the wrong reasons. They scaled way too quickly. They didn't have the sales, as you said earlier, and that really got them in trouble because they were sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, supposedly hundreds of thousands of dollars, which ended up only being tens of thousands of dollars when the market 
crashed um, because everyone was growing it and their quality was awful because they couldn't handle, they couldn't do a good job curing because they tried to grow too much with insufficient um, stuff. Yeah, they had yeah, no drying capabilities. Yeah. So, I mean, like you and I, like the hemp became legalized, you know, you and I started that Facebook group. We, that thing exploded. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun watching that. Oh happen. yeah. And then we just, I kind of backed off because we just saw the writing on the wall and how it was actually, you know, hurting people. Um, but you kind of lasted through it because you chose a very specific niche in the hemp industry right. and, um, you know, providing again, certified organic, high quality. And um, I didn't invest yeah. much. I didn't yeah. invest anything, I, you know, growing seedlings is that that's my DNA. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, so it's just a matter of buying seed. It was just another seed to me. It's like basil seed, you know, yes. it didn't matter. So I didn't have a lot of invested. A lot of people invested a lot of money in things they shouldn't have had. Uh, you know, people who weren't farming, all of a sudden they were hemp farmers. And, uh -huh. you know, it was tragic. You know, I talked out, I talked a lot of people out of doing it. It would show up on my farm. You know, I had a guy showed up in a big Mercedes once and he said, I want to be a hemp farmer. And I looked at him and I said, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so he left <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah absolutely and and the thing is like the thing with the hemp industry is people got so rabid it was like a, it was almost a gold rush that you couldn't find drip tape you couldn't find plastic you couldn't get um uh compost you know i was talking to um carl hammer and carl said i i'm sold out because so many hemp farmers are trying to buy compost right Right. Um, well, Trevor Harding, uh, he did really well over there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he had a blast selling equipment. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I look, it, it's like any anything else, you know, people chase the silver silver bullet. But I didn't get into that. I, I got in, into farming uh, because I don't know why. Why did I do that again? <laughs> it was, it was, it was a, it, you know, growing organic vegetables it just seemed like what else it just mm -hmm. seemed to be it made sense to me grow things that that are healthy so yeah. I got into it that way and I'm I was fortunate that the business side uh, I grew into it uh you know with the right attitude yeah um, and then we so anyway we do segue into the field um and then I, the field becomes almost my sole responsibility while the crew is running uh the greenhouses I oversee it uh, make sure that things are fertilized and I'll do the technical things mm -hmm. um, and all that. But I'm, I'm running the tractor, I'm plowing, preparing the fields. And then, you know, when the day comes when I need a lot of labor, I kind of steal everybody after the trucks load and we all go on the transplanter and we're banging in the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the squash plants or the tomato house. And, and I, I do allocate certain projects to certain people like I, the tomato house um, I'll give to Imelda you know, and, mm -hmm. and she'll do a great job and, and, or, and Vanessa will, you know, do it and, and they, they string it up. And so I just kind of watch it. I'll till it up, but I let them do the whole job. Uh, the celery, which was a new venture last year and this year, I went into it big time. Uh, me and Imelda uh, set it up, but then I let it go to her to finish the planting on her own. And, and that worked out really well. So I try to, one thing you have to do when you uh, being the manager of farmers, letting go, and you find out that you're sort of managing people. You know, you're not the planter. You know, you're not mm -hmm. the. You know, you're not doing everything. You have to learn how to let it go if you're going to expand and be big enough 
to make a decent living. And that was always my goal. I said, I only wanted to live a middle, a nice middle class life and make enough money so that I, I could, you know, do those things and, and uh -huh. have, you know, uh, I had, had three boys and um, I'm proud of that. They're all out on their own. And now I've got, and I've got a daughter now and she's out on her own. And um, I, my, that was my, my goal. I never wanted to get, I knew you couldn't get rich farming, although I do know rich farmers, <laughs> but yes. they're, they're few and, and far between. But as far as Vermont goes, and, you know, I'm proud. We're, we're definitely in the top tier for, for net income, but it's taken me a long time uh, to get there. Uh -huh. um, if I could do it all over again, I mean, I, yeah, you mentioned I got a pretty, pretty hilly farm. Uh, it's really scenic. Yes, sure. it's beautiful. <laughs> But, you know, I do envy those pictures of flat fields that I see. <laughs> you know? yes. It's like, what? where are the hills? Where are the rocks? And someone take their, you know, so I got that. I got hills. I got rocks. But it gives me something to do. Yes. And, you know, um, it's like that movie Dodgeball. If you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. And if you could farm on a hillside with rocks, you could farm anywhere. So I could do that. You know, <laughs> I, I've learned a lot uh, farming farming yeah. up here uh, and so, um yeah so with the field crops you've picked very specific crops and you do them at a little bit of larger scale so you do things like garlic onions potato uh, tomato no sorry uh squash uh i think you do some leeks um, leeks, tomatoes yep um is big and now celery and you know my my goal is like it has to reach a dollar certain dollar size to make it um, mm -hmm. interesting um and uh, so, you know, you could set these goals like, oh, I, we got to do $5,000 worth of something to, to make it a keeper. Uh, originally, I only had six vegetable crops. Now it's up to maybe 12. But still, um, most of my sales are coming from just several crops, uh, winter squash. And, and Vern said, gee, nobody, everybody tells me winter squash is the lowest profitable crop. I said, well, if you grow enough of it, it's a big profitable crop. Yes. So, you know. <laughs> well, but then also you grow it in a very clean systems too. So you have very low labor. Yeah. It's on black plastic with drip. And um, I don't use ground cover on the winter squash for cleanup reasons, yes. but all my other crops, I do use ground cover between the beds of plastic. So it's virtually a sealed field. All yeah. right. Um, and then Wheat we cover free. on say the winter squash after, right after we, we transplant it in, uh, we cover the entire field and we're talking about almost two acres with uh, remay. Okay. Mm -hmm. The entire field with, with uh, no hoops. Um, we used to do hoops and finally by accident, we ran out of hoops on the outer two rows and it was like, wow, they did great. <laughs> so yeah. we just got rid of the hoops, which were a huge labor saver of putting those hoops up. Um, yeah. In a smaller place, hoops are fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it, it's an, more labor and you're dragging the remake over the hoops and, and, and that on. So it's, uh, anyway, we got rid of the hoops. It's covered with remay for like four weeks, five weeks uh, until the plants are really firm. And when they basically, they start to run and, yep. and they're pushing up that remay is like way up in the air and uh, then we'll pull it off. And by then the plants are really strong and uh, whatever few cucumber and cucumber beetles, uh, that's what I, my big bane and squash bugs, uh, mm -hmm. which I hate. 
and uh, but by then the plants are really on their own uh, and I rarely have to really have to spray them uh, maybe once a year and I have an air blast sprayer yeah and um, so do you yeah. do any cultivation on the winter squash then I do I do one um, when we pull that remake yep. off um, we, I try to time it so it's ready to come off and stay off but I could still go over the uh, over the plants and um, uh, using my my tractor and a cultivator I'll just uh, run up and down so the field is really clean once in a while uh, I, I can't get my tractor in on some of the rows like the, some of the rows trick me and uh, when you take off the remay and I can't get through and we uh -huh. might have to run through there with hose or sometimes I'll even take my little garden my yep bcs and and uh, and run it through to clean it up because uh, that all pays off later on you don't want a weedy field the worst year i ever had was when um orchard grass like just established and shot up and you could not see the squash and you had to walk and and sort of with your feet and find the butternut oh gosh um, yes and that's just not fun and, no. and i hate showing i you know my fields have to look pretty. It's what we pride ourselves in. A pretty field is going to be a profitable field. We, weeds don't make you money. I, I learned that in, in mm. year one. Um, you're not making, if in a weedy field, it, it's over. I've tilled in fields that were weedy, that weren't worth the labor. I just had a call that and said, no, we're not going to put the work in. I'll, I'll till it and we'll move on to something else. So you got to know when, when to uh, pull the plug on a crop. Luckily, I don't have to do that anymore. So my crops that I put in, they're all predetermined, limited things like winter squash. Mostly I do transplants because it eliminates so much weeding. I do carrots direct seeded uh, and I flame them. Uh, but even beets I transplant, um, celery, almost everything transplantable, uh, I'll transplant. But again, I'm doing limited crops. I'm not a, I don't do greens. I, I didn't want to uh, get involved uh, with the wash water and the uh -huh. uh, hygiene involved. We're GAP certified, but I just knew greens were going to be problematic. And I, a small, for me, a small grower of greens, I just didn't see the profit in it. Uh, it just, there's no, no poundage there for me. I, I, I didn't want to do it. And there are people doing greens. It's like, uh -huh. I, I don't want to compete with other local people who already have their niche. And I don't want to break in selling selling greens. So we do we do other things. That's all, uh -huh. and and that works and that, that works out. Find your niche, grow for it, grow the best quality you can, um, and and make it profitable. By making it profitable, I mean basically it's keeping your labor, labor yes. low. And we pay our labor well. Oh, you uh, pay very well. Yeah, we do. We pay you know above what most everybody does in the area, and we're giving people raises. So our average uh, you know, wagers, $20 an hour. And that's on the books, by the way. And I'm always yeah. proud to say that. And I know a lot of farmers who, you know, pay on, you know, it's a cash business. I, I get that. Um, and, and way in the beginning, I did that too. But at some point, you know, you got to grow up and man up. And I know, sadly, farmers who uh, never paid into Social Security because they really cheated. They never pay, you know, yeah. claim what they made. Well, now they're trying to retire, and guess what? You know, you try living on minimum Social Security, which is like two hundred thirty dollars a month. That's not fun. No. And they, you know, you know, they thought they would save it up. Well, it's very hard to save money on your own. 
it just, it sounds nice. It's yeah. really hard. Um, so at least social security, it's, it's something. And now these people have nothing, but by not paying your workers on the books, you're also cheating them. You're not giving them their social security mm-hmm. and, and that's not right. So uh, anyway, we played the right game that came back. We, as I, as you know, it paid off this year with, with mm-hmm. uh, the federal and state COVID money because we did have books to show and mm-hmm. we were uh, rewarded um, for that. And it was sort of probably a once in a lifetime thing. So I'm thankful that, you know, we did it the le- legitimate yeah. way. And I'm, I'm proud of that. Well, and it also means that you have incredible team. I mean, you have some team that have that have been with you literally since I knew you years and years ago. Yeah, Richard. Uh, Richard's yeah. like at year 20, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Amelda's going to be like nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nests are about the same. So, yeah, I can't be that much of an SOB to work. Right? <laughs> uh, so. I'll have to ask them that question. <laughs> you do when I'm not around. But, you know, sometimes me and Richard, it's like we're like an old married couple routine, you know? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but you do, you know, there's such a savings when people know uh, what to do, you know, mm-hmm. and they tell me what to do lots of times. And yeah. me, I appreciate it. It's great. Like, did you, you know, did you do, you know, Richard, did you do that? Or Vanessa would go, did you do that? And no, I didn't. They remind me when I, when I screw up. So it's great. A team, a good team uh, is invaluable, worth whatever uh, it takes to, to put together. My mentors, when I started, uh, were older farmers that were around and there were lots of them at the time. Mostly they were dairy farmers because Vermont's a dairy farm state, Uh but you know, there's no vegetable way to drive a tractor, you know, or no organic way to drive a tractor. There's a way to drive a tractor. Yes. And, yeah. And, yeah. And they taught me that, you know, they taught me how to drive a tractor. They taught me how to work hard. Um, and, and that's who I learned from when I had equipment problems, you know, they would come over and help me adjust the wheel spacing on my first corn planter and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's invaluable. So, you know, I'm almost that guy now to other farmers and yeah. it's fine. You know, I, I, I like it. It'll be my retirement thing. I ever do. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm available. Yes. So, uh, but my money goes into labor saving and mechanization. And I know one of the questions, like, what was your best tool I ever bought? And I guess when I finally grew up and bought a four wheel drive tractor, that was mm-hmm. one of the best things I ever did. Um, I, I put it off because he said, well, if you need four wheel drive to be in the field, you shouldn't be in the field. But that's not the only reason to have a four wheel drive tractor. Yes. Uh, it's just so much more accurate uh, and, and the pulling power and mm-hmm. uh, the way it tracks. And it's allowed me to, to run the equipment so much better. And the other thing would be uh, better bookkeeping skills. If I had taught myself better bookkeeping skills, uh, would have helped earlier. Uh, luckily, my wife, who is a, uh, she was a, uh, she ran up the books for a very large uh, company that got sold to uh, another even larger company. So she does, you know, she does the books, uh, does the payroll, um, runs the spreadsheets. So we know, uh, we break down every crop. Uh, and I know weekly what what our gross sales are. So timely entry is really important. Uh-huh. Not waiting like me back in the old day, at the end of the year, I would uh, 
spend two days adding up figures. It's not a good way to run a business. You know, there's proper ways to run a business uh, and uh, weekly, weekly P&L, if you can do it, is great because we have payroll weekly. So, of course, it sort of forces us to know what we're doing and sales and we can know, well, last year, you know, we're behind on this day last year, we did this much sales, you know, and mm-hmm. I would get a kick from Lisa, you know, got to sell more stuff, you know, <laughs> yes. you don't want to fall behind last year. So that always kept me, kept me going. I, I wish I had learned Spanish. I struggled with, with a foreign language. Mm-hmm. Um, I took Spanish in high school, which means nothing. Uh, <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I, I love them. You know, I, I do have friends who have Mexicans working for them and I, and I, and I love them. Mm-hmm. They're just so awesome. And um, I have friends who run Jamaicans and I borrow them uh, once or twice a year for big jobs where I need a big crew. And, and, and they're also awesome and a lot of fun. They love harvesting hemp. Yes. <laughs> it's like they just, they're all smiles when it comes yeah. to hemp. And they show me things that I did not know or I didn't catch. So they're, you can learn from anybody. Uh, but Lisa runs the numbers. Uh, she tracks all the items and sales, does the planting schedules. Uh, I implement the plan. I run the crew, run the physical plant, do the maintenance, direct the crew, load the trucks, um, do sales. Although now that's mechanized, so do we send out an availability list uh, for the plants and the produce. Um, and we just, it's all on email now. I really have to call people up, which is really nice. Um, and, uh, yeah, our trucks, they're DOT certified because we're in four States. Um, we've got a driver that's been with us for several years and he loves doing it. And then he goes on, he's a musician and a painter and, you know, it, it fills a nice, nice, mm. um, niche. Yeah. I used to do the deliveries myself. Uh, so I, it's, it's an interest. I, I liked it, but obviously you can't run a farm and be in the truck at the same time. Exactly. Um, yeah. But tomatoes have always been a mainstay um garlic and we got into black garlic as you know like five years ago yep and that's been awesome uh still selling that we used to do mums and i did bulbs and perennials and hanging baskets by the thousands but you um you know we cut back and we focused uh running flowers and hanging baskets were a real problem because of uh, insects we didn't have access to the same biocontrols that we have now uh, you know, hanging baskets are just their breeding grounds for aphids, and and um, they also steal light from your yeah. crop underneath. So we we pared down and, and got to what we got. Um, but the vegetables are a lot of fun. Um, we do make money at it. Uh, the farmers markets have been great for us. We did a we stopped doing it this year and did only a pre-order market, which was a new experience and it also worked great. I love that concept. So many people, including myself, have learned so have been forced to learn whole new tricks this year with internet yeah. and pre-ordering and and all that stuff. And that's been great. Back with another marketing tip is Cole Jones from Local Line. Cole, what are we talking about today? Well, we want to dial in today uh, on something that we see happen uh, maybe a little bit too often, which is farms focused on selling their customers every single time that they talk to them. Uh, There is such a thing as overdoing it. 
and I think that this is something that uh, is not thought of all the time and needs to be well understood. So if, if you're a farm uh, or a farmer, we know that in most cases, you do not think of yourself as a salesperson. And as a result, when you go to try to sell your products or when you talk to customers, you're kind of always pitching them, always mm. pitching, 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 selling, selling, selling. And when you do this, it actually really dilutes any significance that you have when you do have a true promotion or when you do have uh, a real sale or something to push. And so what we want to do is we recommend with the farms that we work with, scroll your social feeds, look at your newsletters to customers, and do a quick audit for yourself on how many times out of 10, as an example, that you engage with your customers, are you trying to sell them something? Versus, are you trying to engage them in your story and engage them in what you're doing on the farm? Because we know that a big pull for buying direct from a farm is the emotional attachment that we get from wanting to understand what goes into producing great products, the family that's producing them. And so we always want to recommend that balance. So, so our, our sort of tip is do the audit on your site, on your social feeds, and on your newsletters, whatever you're doing to communicate with customers. And if most of the time you're talking to them, you're trying to sell something instead of educate them on the farm and tell your story, you probably need to dial back the sales a little bit. You want to find a healthy balance between sharing the exciting things that are going on. And then, of course, you know, when you have product or a sale or, you know, extra things to sell, th th then focus on it. Sure. But it shouldn't uh -huh. be shouldn't be all the time. Okay. So you're saying like the weekly newsletter shouldn't just be like, we've got beef tip on sale. It's like, here's what's happening on the farm. And then, oh, by the way, further down the newsletter, we do have beef tip. Yeah. Like, I mean, listen, even if you want to open with beef tip, that's fine. But if every single newsletter that you send focuses on selling beef tip, I think that you're probably missing a broader opportunity to build a deeper relationship with your customers. Uh -huh, uh -huh. They want to know more about you and the family than just beef tip. Local food, you know, buying from your farmer is not supposed to be a hyper transactional relationship. It's supposed to be a relationship that's built on shared values. Mm -hmm. And I think that if all you're trying to do is promote something that could get viewed as a commodity, you know, beef tip, when it's not a commodity at all, it's really about what went into producing that product. You know what I mean? I think that those are two conflicting messages. And I think that just the natural thing for farmers, once they wrap their head around, okay, I got to sell this product is like sell, 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 sell. And, yeah. and that, that's good. That's good. But, but we can't lose sight of why ultimately the customer is coming to buy from you. All right. Well, Cole, thank you so much for another tip today. Thank you for having me. Now talk a second about the farmer's market. Cause you have, um, I, did you say it's the oldest farmer's market in Vermont? The second oldest by a year. Okay. And they charge percentage of sales. We, they charge, we charge, they charge as, a, as yeah. a member, we charge ourselves a uh, 3% of sales. Uh, there's also a membership fee of a hundred dollars a year. And then we charge ourselves by the, by the lineal footage that our booth takes up. Um, I can't remember what the rate is, but I, I do know that 
um, it cost me about $700 uh, for the lineal footage alone. And then the membership, and then there's a, a deposit for our site um, and all that. So let's, let's round it up. Say it's, a, and then it's 3% yeah. on top of the sales. So it's not a cheap market, but it's a super successful market that um, consistently yeah. does, brings in the sales. The other thing that makes, we've been able to buy and we own our own land now. Yeah. So we, we're one of the few in the country that we own our own site. Um, we're designated the only entity in the town that can use the name Farmer's Market. Now that doesn't seem like a lot, but it, it is. is when somebody opens up a store and calls it a Farmer's Market yeah. And, and talk about confusing your customers. So for anybody listening and who is in good relations with the town, it's something to bring up if you have a board uh, and of directors of, you know, getting that settled down. And the town supports us so well now where originally it wasn't. It was a hard sell. A lot of people were against us and um, it was a long, hard grind, but it's been like 40 something years now and we are part of the fabric of the town and um, it, it's we're a tourist yeah. attraction. Yeah. So. But I mean, Howard, with all your other sales, you don't need to go to the farmer's market. No. But you like no. to go to the farmer's market. Exactly. I tell you the truth. If, if Amelda didn't want to do it, I wouldn't be there. Yeah. So Amelda and her uh, now husband, Howard, not yes. me. <laughs> um, now to do, do the farmer's market. And of course I didn't do it this year because of COVID. Uh, yeah. but I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to return to the market um, for next year, but yeah, it's a lot of work. There's no doubt, but it keeps us, it, it keeps people from to the farm and bothering me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cause I, cause they've been there so long. Everyone knows you. They do want to all find out, you know, what's the latest thing going on with Howard. Out in the farm and yeah, and, and there's that. And I do go down there, you know, and it's like I could spend two hours just wandering around and talking and meeting. And, and yeah. I was there once and Nicole Kidman and her husband were lolly dollying through the farmer's market. Uh, Urban, Keith Urban, is that his name? She's my Urban. Sure. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, how do I know that? <laughs> and you never know who you're going to meet there. Um, yeah. So it's it's always a lot of fun. It's a very crowded market, a lot of fun and, and intense. But it's it's I, I I love farmers market. It's not for everybody, but if you like people and you like the wheeling and the dealing, um, it, it's a it's a great gig and it, it's nice it's nice money uh, at that time of the year when we're not doing uh, when the horticultural things slows yeah. down. Uh, it, it's it's just it's a nice outlet for us. Because anyway, yeah, because how you've built that is that so the horticulture is heavy, heavy, heavy spring into the early summer. Then you're growing the crops in the summer, and then you really start to pick up and focus more on the farmers markets through the later summer into the fall. Well, yes and no. I mean, we sell the plants early spring when the market opens up the yeah. first Saturday in May. I uh, mean, we do yeah. we do kill a business. We're selling seedlings. Uh, ah, gotcha. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, we could do, I could do $2,000 in a, in a day there on, you know, herb plants or whatever else we have. No vegetables, just, yeah. just herbs. So it, it's a great market and um, it's a, it's a service. And then as the, <clears throat> the plants kind of peter out, it, you know, sales go down, but then they, they start uh, picking back up. And especially with the hemp now, 
uh, it's actually last year was very steady. We're selling uh, pre-rolled hemp cigarettes mm -hmm. and, and hemp buds by the gram, by the ounce. We're selling whole fresh hemp plants, you know, for a hundred dollars a plant, we're hanging them off the back of the truck. People love that. Uh, so the sales have stayed very steady um, through the years. Whereas I used to, I used to sell mums and asters. Now we're selling hemp and hemp plants and black yeah. garlic. And we yeah. sell crazy amounts of black garlic there. Um, we sampled it out and nobody could get by Imelda without her, you know, sticking a piece of black garlic on a baguette in your, in your yeah. mouth to try. So uh, that's been, that really pushes it. But you got to really uh, enjoy, have somebody who really likes being with people or forcing yourself to be with people. It's, a, it's good. You should, everybody should like people. <laughs> yes, <they laughs> How should. can I explain to you that you should like people, Michael? You should like people. <laughs> Well, Howard, you know, I'm an introvert. So technically I shouldn't like to go to farmer's markets, but I absolutely love farmer's markets because I don't know. I just, I, I love growing things and I love sharing that with people. And then obviously once you get to go into farmer's markets, your friends are there. And so you just want to hang out with your friends. It, but, it's like going to a farm convention for me. You yes. Know, I, I don't go, you know, to, to look at the tractors particularly. I just go there to, to, to talk with Jake Guest and see all yeah. my friends and, you know, yeah. whatever, hang out. So, but for me, that's what the farmer's market is, but it's a moneymaker for us. It's an absolute yeah. moneymaker in it. And it's essential, especially in my starting years. It, it was essential because I, I even did flea markets back in, back in the day. I would, Saturdays was farmer's market. Sunday, I was at a, a newfane flea market. Almost every day of the week, we had I had to sell something. That was my my mantra. Was what you know what dollars are coming in today? I uh -huh. was somewhat fanatical and and obsessed with it. And if there's any reason I could point, what's what made me successful is I was obsessed with with um, uh -huh. yes, I guess um, sales sales. <clears throat> so you know you said what was the one of the questions uh, you asked me was what is the best time? Is it the best time? When is the best time to start a farm? Okay. Yeah. Well, the best time to start a farm was last year. Yes. But the, the second, the second best time to start a farm will be this year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, everybody gets a chance. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's like, you know, it's, what was that old quote? What was the best time to plant, you know, to plant a tree? It was yeah. last year. Well, he, <laughs> this year is the second best time. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. So Howard, you know, you've been doing this a long time and you've seen a lot of farmers come and go in that time. What would you say is the biggest mistake you see brand new farmers make? Um, it may sound opposite of each other, but either spending, spending too much or spending too little. Uh -huh. right? So I, I've seen, I saw a guy who was a president of IBM move up into Norwich, Vermont and like dropped like tons of money and uh, he was gone within two years. Mm. Um, he just, you know, it, it's never going to make you the kind of money that you think it should make you. Um, it just, that's not what it, what it does. But if you also expect that you could, you know, just take a, you know, a garden rototiller and make a living, you got to be realistic. You got to know what you, what you want. Okay. In mm. terms of what are you trying to do? So the objective of what you're trying to do and where you're trying to do it um, come into play. So I've seen people fail for, from trying to be too, too big and um, too small that it wasn't, it was too small to make a living 
and um, just not big enough. They weren't able to scale up. Uh, mm -hmm. They, you know, so that that's a problem. And, and I see also, you know, young kids, families, they, they start out and everybody could live, you could live cheap easily for one year. You know, you, I, I've seen people, you could live, you could live in your Volkswagen mm -hmm. microbus or throw up a, a tent. I mean, hell, I lived in a teepee, but, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you got a girlfriend or you get married and, 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 and you might start having kids. It's different. It changes things. You know, it, you need to realize that it's not a bad thing to try to attain, a, you know, a middle class lifestyle. That should be the goal because that will allow you to, to function long term. That is the key to long term um, in, in growing is to be financially uh, successful enough to be able to uh, fix, you know, it shouldn't be a choice of get fixing the tractor, but, you know, <laughs> no clothes for the kids. I mean, yeah. you've got it, you've got to be re realistic. So setting up a, a business plan is really important these days. It wasn't as important to me back when I was getting 12 cents a pound for cabbage, mm -hmm. um, but you know, labor was cheap. You know, I remember I worked for $4 an hour and that was a good wage. Um, when I, you know, got off season jobs, $4 an hour wow. in the early seventies, working at the Putney nursery, um, doing hard work, uh -huh. um, but I was happy to have it. And um, so things, things have changed. Now the stakes are much higher, but the re, you know, um, prices are much better, but costs are much better. I, I don't know really how much it difference it is except the acceptance of local grown is much different now uh -huh. um, back then um people were very much brainwashed into going to the supermarket and buying their corn and their cucumbers and farm stands were pretty much a rarity even in vermont um they were around but they weren't the big deal that they are now restaurants did not you know I, I built up a trade with restaurants, but that was not the typical restaurant. Restaurants got their can, their, their vegetables out of a can or, or frozen. And so things, things have changed a lot. But really, um, I, my advice is always, I was lucky I started working for somebody. I learned uh, from experienced people. And that's really, if you think you're going to want to run a farm, is <clears throat> work on a farm and, and see if that's really what you like and, and learn there's so much to learn from established farmers again you know driving a tractor operating a wrench i mean you know especially for people not coming from a country background mm -hmm. uh, there's just so many skills to learn that to cram it into you know several years is not easy you know how you know the truck don't start what do you do uh, you know, and why is there oil underneath the engine on the ground? <laughs> you know, well, this, this... it is a massive difference between is it a hydraulic oil or is it engine oil? Because you can, yeah, it depends on can you actually start is it diesel? You know, <laughs> it, it, yes. it, it, you know I, I remember coming back to my car once after, you know, going to the movies and there was a big puddle under my car and it turned out the gas tank leaked. And uh, there was a hole and like half my tank leaked out and that was not fun. No. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, learning all those, basically their life skills that you don't normally learn yeah. unless you grew up uh, in the country or on a farm or, 
or some other situation, a ranch or whatever. But um, it, it's it's definitely, you know, life skills. You, you accumulate all this knowledge and you can, knowing plumbing is a great skill on a farm. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. knowing electrical is a great skill on the farm. So you could come from a lot of backgrounds and you bring all these things. Hey, I wish I was a carpenter. I could not, I could not hammer two pieces of wood together well. Okay. Really, yeah. Howard? Huh? That surprises I, me. I know. I'm not, I'm not great <laughs> at it. You know, I'm really not great. So I, I hire carpenters. I hire builders uh, yeah. and they do it right. And if they don't, I make them do it right. But, you know, we put up rudimental stuff, me and Richie, you know, we threw the doors up and this and that. Mm -hmm. We can do that kind of stuff. So we're much better than we used to be. But I, and plumbing, I, I could do easy stuff. I definitely, I could do the drips. I designed, I designed the um, heated tables, mm -hmm. propagation tables, and I hooked it up. Maybe I'm underselling myself, but I'm, I'm not a plumber. I'm not an electrician, and I'm not really a carpenter, even though I pretend I, I could do certain things. But you, you, you bring all these skills, and I wasn't, I didn't know about sales. I was very introverted, too. I was shy growing yeah. up. I really was. So thing, things have changed. Yeah, but I think the thing is, too, is that farming is to be a good farmer, you have to know so many different uh, sub, like you have to know the plumbing, you have to know the electrical. And yes, you'll get to a point that you will start to outsource those. Um, but at the beginning, being able to do your own is literally going to save you thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. It, it will. It, it will. Um, I, but I find establishing relationships with professionals <laughs> pays off in the long run. Um, having good relationship with the people that you hire, local people, um, you know, plumbers, you know, uh, and, and paying them promptly. Real yes. important. One th skill I learned, I worked for UPS for one year. And one of the things I learned from UPS is how they built their business and, and being a, uh, paying your vendors promptly, paying the people you do business with promptly, get you to the top of the line. I call up a plumber, my plumber comes. I call up an electrician, the electrician comes. Why? Because he knows he's going to get paid really quickly. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I mean, what else do you want? As a farmer, I deliver, I want to get paid. You know, I get checks, you know, one week and two weeks. It's, it's awesome. That's the kind of accounts you have. You don't want troubling accounts and you don't want to be a troubled account. Uh -huh. So, you know, be a good be a good um, vendor, be a good uh, merchant and pay, pay. So that that's a skill that that you do, that I, I do learn. Be, be good in business. So Howard, where can people find out more about your farm and, and all that you do? Listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you can actually get up-to-date stuff um, on Instagram if you're on social media, High Meadows Farm. I've got a pretty good Instagram feed. It, it's only beautiful pictures of the farm and my crops and uh, and, and Imelda. So it's always, um, you could start there, High Meadows Farm on Instagram and High Meadows Farm on Facebook. And if you punch in high, looking for High Meadows Farm on Facebook, uh, every state has a High Meadows Farm. So you yes. need to punch in, you'll wind up at a horse farm in Missouri. So you got to do High Meadows Farm Vermont and it'll narrow it down and then you'll find me and also under my name on Facebook. Yeah, uh, I, I post way too many pictures and, and my meals that I, I've become a decent cook. 
So I'm not a good carpenter, but I, I can make delicious, <laughs> delicious food using my ingredients. And so I'm starting to post recipes now too. So okay, that's I will stuff. have to check that out. And yeah, we're I, uh, yeah. Got, well, now with the, now that we've started to uh, do mushrooms, I've actually started to get back in the kitchen a lot more um, because I obviously, yeah. Now I got to get a bunch more recipes, and and so I got to start building that side of the business out. So uh, no, that that's a, that could be a good field. For some reason, I there's been several people around here who've tried doing mushroom. Uh, farming and growing and none of them panned out and I think it's a matter of as I mentioned scale uh -huh. you know is it is it a hobby you know or is it going to be an avocation and you, you know to scale up mushroom growing you really got to start in a different place than you know just doing it small uh -huh. you know it's a, it's a different deal I, I think there's room for larger scale local mushroom growing, but I haven't seen it. And I haven't seen even the hobby guys like, you know, make it after year two. And I'm not sure why. It's that's interesting too, because there is a, a lot of opportunity. Um, there's a lot of value audit adding you can do to them. And uh, just your margin on them is really good. Um, so um, I'm really surprised just, you know, there's not more people really doing great job with it. Um, because it is such an opportunity right now. And obviously part of it too is that Americans have been accustomed to just three types of, well, three different uh, names of mushrooms, which are actually all the same type of mushroom. Um, and uh, like, you know, the white button, the uh, all of that portobello, they're actually the same mushroom, just at different stages of growth. Right, um, baby so, bella, portobello. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you go to Europe, I mean, 12 to 15 different types is what everyone is used to. So I think that's part of the thing is America needs to know that there's a lot more. And so obviously that's part of our job as a farmer is to educate them with, you know, how many types there are, just how good they are, how good they are for you. Um, they're incredible for you. I mean, they're one of the only foods, um, uh, well, I think like vegan foods you can get that have vitamin D in them. Mm-hmm. So obviously meats have vitamin D, but like there's really no vegetables that have vitamin D. Um, so antioxidants. I mean, it's a great yeah. Food. Oh, uh, it's fabulous. Coffee, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful, flavorful, yeah. incredible healer. Yeah, and the lion's mane, just the brain food that the lion's mane are. It's amazing. That helps with PSTD. It helps with so many different things. So yeah, no, yeah. mushrooms are one of the the foods of the future. You know, nutrient. Yeah. Uh, I really that turmeric, ginger. There are a lot of niche products that people could get into that could be very profitable. I know a lot of, a lot of guys, a lot of farmers uh, who are doing that now. So yeah. getting into that. Well, this has been fun. It's been great. Um, it's always, yeah. always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on, Howard. I know we've, uh, I forget, when did we meet? Was it 2000? We, it was probably New England Vestware Growers, one of the first times we went into, I went a few... to one of your seminars down in the boondocks of Western of Massachusetts once. Might've been in oh. Orange Mass. <laughs> or something. Yes. I don't know, uh, talking at a town hall. Yes. I, I remember said, that. Okay. There you go. Yes. Um, and, um, you gave a really good presentation. You ace the um, presentation award. Uh, you're really great with, uh, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. So you really have it down. Yeah. Um, well, we're trying, we're getting better. I think that's, you know, and I think it's one of the things like you know, I, I did take a break. Well, take a break from full-time farming when we started in 2015 for a couple of years when we, you know, I moved to Ohio, mm -hmm. but 
And, you know, I really, really regretted that. And like that caused a fair amount of friction between my wife and myself um, because I really love farming. But I think it was actually really, really good for me because it actually helped me step away and step so much more into learning the business side. And then obviously working with hundreds of farmers around the U.S. and around the world. I just I feel like I have a completely different perspective on farming now. Well, Um, that was like my my semi sabbatical. Yeah. Um, Getting into, you know, the sales size and traveling around New England and and, and looking and you know the country because I, I would go to California and things uh-huh. to meet these these my uh, people I work for and you just like you you learn a lot of things doing a lot of different things but I got uh-huh. back into it so energized and, and hungry to grow and my international travel uh, you know when oh, I was yeah. going we didn't even talk about that but that's been like one of my the greatest highlights of my life and I went to Nepal a couple of times and El Salvador and, uh-huh. and Myanmar and working with you know, small growers of like, you know, you meet somebody there and it looks like here the size farm that they ran would be somebody's garden. And you find out that they're making a living from, yeah. their, you know, from their farm, you know, behind their house. And, yeah. um, and $700 a year would be their income from that farm. And that was what they lived on. Mm-hmm. So it's humbling. And, and you realize that we are blessed with so much opportunity and material things in this country that I, I felt ashamed that I wasn't pushing myself to the potential that we had. Uh-huh. And when uh-huh. I came home, I ramped up my vegetable production, most to the dismay of my wife at the time of, um, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? 150,000 onion transplants. You know, like, understand, <laughs> you know, yes. And, And, you know, so that, you know, I really ramped it up because I just felt the responsibility. I said, you know, if I'm going to go talking to people, you know, in these countries of, I really, I really got to do it as well and as, and not waste opportunity. And, and, and that's what I've done. And so, but that's been the most, one of the most fulfilling things in my life Uh uh, is international travel. And I wish more people could, could travel and go to, and not go to just the resorts, which I love too. But, yeah. you know, to see how the world really is, it's a great thing. Well, yeah. maybe you can include a little of that, too, when you edit me down. Absolutely. But, all right. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Uh, Thank all right. you, Howard. Hey, take care. See you around. All right. Bye. Bye. Looking to start or grow your farm business? You need a compelling farm plan that you can share with investors, convince your significant other with, or just to give yourself peace of mind. We have created a new program called the Start Your Farm Intensive. In it, you'll learn how to develop your farm idea to make sure you take all the factors into consideration for your context and your climate. You'll learn how to craft a one-page business plan that helps clearly define your target customer and lay out the necessary characteristics of your business. You will understand the three financial documents that every farm needs to fill out to make sure you are making money. And we'll give you all that as templates too. So you have the templates to fill out for your farm business. We'll also go through funding. So where to go for funding for the various stages and parts of your business. Starting a farm is hard. Starting a farm without a proven plan is almost impossible. Join us today. Go to growingfarmers.com forward slash start for more information. Now, what did past students have to say? Corey says, the exercises and spreadsheets helped me make the learning process easier and more real. Jenna says, I gained the support system and resources I needed for when I'm ready for the next step. And finally, the worksheets make you think out every aspect of the business step by step.
Go ahead, join us today, growingfarmers.com forward slash start. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.